evidence and answers. Skeptics allege that we do not have reliable historical records of Jesus since the Gospels were written nearly a century after the life of Christ. Therefore, they also assert that the miracles of Jesus are mythical in nature. Is there evidence that supports Christianity's belief that Jesus is the unique, divine Son of God? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, scholar, author, teacher, national and international speaker, Pat Zugrin. Today, Pat presents part two of his message, Unless I See. Is there enough evidence to believe in Jesus? This message and Pat's articles on this topic are available on Pat's website, evidenceandanswers.org. Let's join Pat now as he presents his case for Jesus Christ, and you decide if there's enough evidence to believe. How come there's no other historical work written about him? Only the Gospels. If this is God in the flesh, you would expect someone else to say something about him, but there is nothing. I responded and said, well, you're incorrect. We have close to a dozen non-Christian historical accounts that affirm many of the events and characters in the Gospels. In fact, you can call these anti-Christian historical accounts because when they write about Christianity or Christians or Jesus, they're very denigrating in the accounts that they give. Now, those of you who are familiar with law, you understand when your enemy affirms the testimony of your defendant. Enemy attestation is one of the most powerful and most convincing evidences in a case in court. When your enemy has no reason to affirm and verify your facts, that's very compelling evidence, and that's what we have here. Now, we're not going to go through all of these non-Christian accounts. We went through a lot more last night, but I'll just go over two real famous ones. Here's Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian ended up is a very interesting story of how he betrayed the Jews and became a historian for the Roman Empire. But much of what we know that happened in the land of Palestine under the Romans comes from this man, Josephus. And he writes this in his book, The Antiquities. Now there was about that time a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous and many people from amongst the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days later after his crucifixion, and there he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. In that brief paragraph there, Josephus summarizes the message of the gospel, that Christ was a real historical figure. He lived a unique life. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And many believed he was the Messiah and that he had risen from the dead. Another historian, Tacitus, very famous Roman historian, known for his accuracy, writes this. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. You can tell he doesn't like Christians. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurators Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. So here Tacitus says there was a man named Christ. He died under the hands of Pontius Pilate, just as recorded in the Gospels, and that Christianity spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire, as recorded in the Gospels and Acts. 
And not only do we have non-Christian historical works, we have archaeological confirmation that the Gospels are indeed historically accurate. Christianity is uniquely a historical faith, and it's got thousands of historical evidences to back up and support the existence of the characters and events that took place. We have discovered Luke is an extremely accurate historian. Archaeologists have discovered he names 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands accurately. And his accuracy can be seen in his details, how he, the titles of government officials, he nails it right on. Even some of the titles that seem strange that many people thought he was mistaken, he's proven to be correct. Such as Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, Pluvius, the first man of the island. These titles were very strange, but archaeology has confirmed Luke nailed it right on the head. Historian F.F. Bruce writes of Luke, a man whose accuracy can be demonstrated in matters where we are able to test it is likely to be accurate even where the means for testing him are not available. Accuracy is a habit of mind, and we know from happy experience that some people are habitually accurate, just as others can be depended upon to be inaccurate. Luke's record entitles him to be regarded as a writer of habitual accuracy. Sir William Ramsey, a skeptic, traveled to Palestine and Greece for the sole purpose of discrediting the Gospel of Luke and Acts. After years of extensive study, he concluded this, Luke is a historian of first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And he shortly after gave his life to Jesus Christ. Thousands of archaeological discoveries affirm the characters and events of the Bible. Let me just go through three with you. Here in a beautiful stadium in Caesarea Maritima, built in the first century, there's the beautiful stadium where they did the chariot races and an amphitheater that can seat about 2,000. And even without a microphone, you can stand on the stage and a person way at the top can hear you talking. Well, a plaque was discovered in 1961 of who built this stadium and why he built it. And it was built by, guess who? Pontius Pilate. And it states here on the plaque, Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Palestine, and Tiberius was the emperor, just as recorded in the Gospels. In a royal chamber in 1990, the ossuary of Caiaphas was discovered. This is the head priest who sentenced Jesus to death. In 1968, a man was found. His name was still on the ossuary, Ben Johan Hagago. And it was discovered he was crucified just as described in the Gospels. In fact, the six-inch nails were still embedded in his ankle there. There's the reconstruction there, you can see. And in fact, his upper arms and shoulders, the bones were found to be worn down, obviously pulling himself up and down to breathe on the cross. The discovery affirms the crucifixion account of Jesus Christ. And finally, the Gospels have been accurately preserved. They haven't been changed and embellished over the centuries. How do we know that? Well, we have over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts, some dating as early as 120 AD, hundreds more papyrus and parchment fragments. We have early versions of the New Testament, the Syriac, Coptic, Latin Vulgate, 
And then we have quotes from the church fathers who in the first 300 years quote every verse of the New Testament except for 11. In all, we have 24,000 ancient documents from which we can look and compare. 24,000 documents from three different parts of the world which we can compare and see if the New Testament has been embellished and changed. And from being able to compare all these documents, we are very confident that the New Testament has been very accurately preserved. So, we have with us a first century eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. They are very accurate, historically confirmed by historical works and archaeology. Well, what did Jesus say about himself? Well, Jesus made a very astounding claim. He claimed to be the unique divine Son of God. In John chapter 8, the religious leaders asked Jesus, well, what gives you the authority to say the things you say and to claim the authority you have? He said, are you greater than our father Abraham, the father of the Jews who lived 2,000 years ago? And Jesus responded by saying, well, before Abraham was born, I am. The Greek phrase there, ego emi, from Exodus 3.14, Jesus was clearly claiming to be the divine Son of God. That's why in the following passages, it states that the Jews picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They understood what he was claiming. Later on in John chapter 10, the religious leaders again asked Jesus, who gives you this kind of authority? And, and Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And the Jews replied, we're not stoning you for any of these but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood what Jesus was claiming, and he was claiming the authority that only belongs to God. Now, a man making those kinds of claims, if I came to you this morning and I claim to be God incarnate, you would not be sitting there going, wow, Pat Zucran, what a great and wonderful teacher. You're probably thinking, this guy's a nut job. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, says this, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Either Jesus was who he said he was, the unique divine Son of God, or he was an insane madman or the devil from hell. You know, this was clearly illustrated at the University of Texas. I was speaking once, and we opened it with a skit. My friend came up before a hostile, non-Christian audience of graduate students from all over the world. And he said, you know, I was speaking to my higher self the other day, and my higher self has never lied to me. And my higher self told me that I am God, and I'm here to receive your love and worship. And the students there booed him and threw things at him. And so I came out on stage. I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why are you booing this man? Why don't you listen to this? And they said, okay, if he's God, tell him to walk on water. 
gonna make it rain in this auditorium. And he looked at me and said, oh, don't test me, don't test me, you know, don't get me mad. <laughs> so they were laughing and, and finally after a couple minutes I said, all right, is this man a great and wonderful teacher? They said, no, this, lock this guy up in a mental hospital. And I said, well, these are the claims Christ made about himself. Either he is who he said he was, or he's an insane madman or the devil from hell. You've got to make your choice. Absolute silence in that room as I gave the presentation. Well, was he a madman or truly the divine son of God? Did he confirm his claims? Jesus made some unique claims and confirmed them in a very unique way through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. There are several evidences of how Christ confirmed his claims. I'll just go through a few. First, we can look at his impact on mankind. His impact on mankind has been incredible. His impact on education has been phenomenal. More schools have been built in the name of Christ than any other person in history. The whole movement to educate the poor came out of the Christian church moved by the teaching and life of Jesus Christ. More songs are written about Christ than any other person in the history of the world. More books are written of Christ than any other man in the history of the world. More art has been painted of Jesus Christ than any other person in the world. His impact on medicine has been incredible. More hospitals are built in the name of Christ than any other person in the history of the world. All this from a man who was born a poor carpenter, who had a three-year teaching ministry, never ruled a kingdom, never led an army, and who died a disgraceful criminal's death on the cross. His impact on the world has just been astounding. That alone makes him quite unique. Second, Jesus lived a sinless life. In John chapter 10, the enemies of Jesus come to him and Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? For what sin do you hold me accountable for? Is what he was asking them. And they could not mention any. Even at his trial, the governor Pontius Pilate looked at the crowd and said what? I find this man not guilty. Even Jesus' closest associates, who he taught to confess sin, they themselves saw of Christ that he had no need to confess sin. Peter wrote, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth in 1 Peter chapter 2. This cannot be said of any other religious leader. Muhammad, on several occasions in the Quran, is told to confess and repent of his sin. Christ alone lived a sinless life. Third, Jesus confirmed his claims through his miracles. Jesus' miracles demonstrate authority over every realm of creation. Now, these are not legends, for remember, legends take two to three generations to develop. Peter, in just a few weeks after the resurrection, goes into the city of Jerusalem in front of the men who had witnessed these things and the men who had crucified Jesus Christ. And he preaches this sermon. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter is saying, you guys know this. You are eyewitnesses of the things that Christ did. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter appeals to the hostile crowd and says, You are eyewitnesses. His message would have never lasted had the events he spoke of were simply legend. Because you see, the Gospels and the New Testament are first-generation accounts written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who could confirm these events as true or false. Just imagine if I went into the city of Dallas and I said, nearly 40 years ago, John F. Kennedy came here, gave a wonderful speech, and performed supernatural miracles, fed 5,000 people with just two loaves of bread, was raising the dead, was walking on water, prophesied 9-11-2001, prophesied the fall of the Berlin Wall, and he was shot, and three days later in the hospital, he stood up and rose, and thousands of people saw him rise from the dead. Well, how long would my message last? Probably not even a day. Why too many eyewitnesses there who are still alive who can testify to these accounts? Same thing here. Peter is just preaching just a few weeks after all these events took place. So we have the miracles of Christ. No other religious leader in the history of the world performs the miracles Christ performs. Buddha in their earliest scriptures performs none. Confucius doesn't perform any. Muhammad does not perform any. Only Jesus Christ. Then we have the remarkable record of prophecy. No other person in the history of the world has the legacy of prophecy of Jesus Christ. There are over a hundred prophecies made of Christ centuries before he set foot upon the earth and he fulfills every one. And they're pretty specific where he would be born, the time of his death. Daniel chapter 9 predicts the exact time of his death, how he would die, the description of his ministry, prophesied centuries before he sets foot upon the earth. And they're pretty accurate prophecies made of Jesus Christ over a hundred which he fulfills. Now, Peter Stoner, mathematician, figured out the probability. What's the probability that Christ could have fulfilled these just by chance? Maybe the guy just got lucky. What's the probability he could fulfill just eight of these by chance? Well, Peter Stoner figured it out and he said, well, it's 1 over 10 to the negative 17th power. Okay, it's 1 over 10 with 17 zeros behind them. So that would be, as he illustrates, filling the state of Texas with quarters two stories high, putting an X on three of the quarters and mixing it up in that pile. Then I fly you over the state of Texas and I drop you somewhere, and the first quarter you pick up has that X on it. That's how incredible the odds are. But there's over a hundred prophecies which Christ fulfilled. There's the famous Daniel 9 prophecy which predicts the exact day Christ enters Jerusalem and is crucified. Remarkable prophecies. No one has such a legacy of prophecy. And finally, Jesus confirms his claim to be the divine Son of God by his resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection is the following. Here are the facts all historians confirm and we agree upon. First, Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Non-Christian historical records such as Josephus and the Jewish Talmud affirm that. Even the two most liberal scholars, men who deny the resurrection in large parts of the New Testament, Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan, agree that Jesus Christ was crucified. Second, the tomb site was known 
and was found empty. In fact, in 1878, a famous slab was discovered. This is called the Nazareth Decree from the Emperor Claudius in 41 to 54 AD. And this decree stated that no graves should be disturbed or the bodies removed. Now, this type of decree is not uncommon, but the startling fact is that here he writes, it's my decision concerning graves and tombs, whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if someone does with that, wish that violator to suffer capital punishment under the title of tomb breaker. The startling fact is that the offender here is to be sentenced by capital punishment. That's very strange. A likely explanation is that Claudius, having heard of the resurrection and the story of the Jews spreading the rumor that Christ's body was removed, wrote this decree in 49 AD as he was investigating the riots as he came down to the Palestinian area. So Christ died by means of crucifixion. The tomb site was known and was found empty. Hundreds claimed to have seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we have the transformation of the disciples. How do we explain the disciples who just days before were cowering in fear from the authorities suddenly would go into the city of Jerusalem, into the face of these authorities and preach this kind of message, saying, hey, you know the guy you crucified? He's a resurrected, risen Messiah, and he calls you to bow your knee and worship him. Knowing this message would bring their death or a life of suffering and persecution, not only for them, but for their family members and all who would follow. What best explains this kind of transformation? Then we have a massive Jewish societal transformation. Thousands of Jews abandoning basic tenets of the Jewish faith and suddenly embracing Jesus Christ no longer sacrificing at the temple, believing it's fulfilled in this guy, Jesus Christ, no longer worshiping on the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, worshiping now on Sunday. We have the origin of the church that preached the resurrection from the very beginning. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is an ancient creed that we can trace back to within five years of the resurrection. That's how early the preaching of the resurrection begins. And finally, that the preaching begins in Jerusalem. If it were all fiction and myth, could have never survived such a hostile arena. What is the best explanation that accounts for these undisputed facts? Well, all alternative theories have failed. I've had the privilege to debate this on university campuses throughout the world, on radio, and my other Mentors, far more scholar than me, have debated this on campuses throughout the world, and the evidence for the resurrection has not been defeated. The best, most reasonable explanation is that a miracle occurred that Christ had risen from the dead. All alternative explanations throughout the years have miserably failed. Christ confirmed his claim to be the divine Son of God through his miraculous, sinless, life, death, and resurrection. Well, what is the significance of this message? Well, we have some monumental implications here. First, Jesus confirms that he is indeed God in the flesh. God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Second, 
Jesus is Lord over all creation and worthy of our worship. Third, all that Jesus taught is true. Fourth, Jesus made the way possible to a relationship with God and eternal life through his death and resurrection. And finally, you and I have a decision to make. God invites us into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has made the way possible. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? There's enough evidence to make a reasonable decision. Through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection, Jesus confirms his claim to be the divine Son of God, the only way to eternal life, and an everlasting relationship with God can be yours today when you respond to the greatest message ever given. If you're ready to receive Christ, have a personal relationship with God, maybe for some of you this is the first time you've heard this message, first time you've heard of evidence for Christ, you want to learn more, there's a book out there I could recommend, Unless I See, from the words of Thomas, who said, Unless I see the evidence, I will not believe. Everything we covered and more, you'll find there in the book I had the privilege to write with several of my professors there. But if this is the first time you've heard this and say, man, I want to learn more, I invite you to talk to your pastors here, your leaders. Check out the resources that we have for you. Well, this concludes Pat's message. If you miss any part of this study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire message and also read Pat's related articles. All of the information Pat presented and more are in Pat's book titled, Unless I See, Is There Enough Evidence to Believe? In this book, Pat presents the compelling evidence for the Christian faith, such as the evidence for the existence of God, the inspiration of the Bible, the reliability of the Gospels, and more. This is a great book for every Christian who wants to be an effective witness for Christ in our culture today. Pat's ministry with Probe International relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. We thank you for joining us today and look forward for you being with us next week right here for more of Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.